Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. COVID cases are rising, so are demands for testing being met? We certainly had a, a large increase in demand for testing. I'm Jade Heinzman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The efforts to control ghost guns in San Diego. We will make sure that we treat these unfinished frames in receivers just like every other firearm, requiring background checks, waiting periods, so that we know who's purchasing them and we prevent them from falling into the wrong hands. The impact of war on the Dark Horse Battalion plus the mental health of athletes and a lawmaker who says aliens are out there. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. More people across the county are seeking COVID testing as the Delta variant is causing an increase in people sickened from and exposed to the virus. Now both healthcare providers and local health officials are working on plans to rapidly increase testing capacity. Here to tell us more about those efforts is San Diego Union Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. So can you give us an idea of how much of an increase in testing demand we've seen in San Diego County in the last few weeks? Yeah, I was wondering this myself yesterday, so I asked the county, and uh, it looks like on uh, July 1st, we had an average of about 7,200 tests uh, going on. That's a seven-day average. 
and as of Sunday, the seven-day average was about 12,000. So it's increased. It hasn't quite doubled if you're looking at seven-day averages, which I think is a more kind of accurate way to, to understand some of these numbers. But it certainly has increased quite a bit. A, a few days ago, it was uh, getting over 15,000 uh, per day on certain days. And maybe a few weeks, uh, a few months ago, we uh, we might have been down to you know maybe just a couple thousand uh, on any given day. So we certainly had a, a large increase in demand for testing. Exactly what it is, uh, you know, these numbers are always changing. The, the most recent numbers are are a little uh, underreported, just because it takes some labs longer to get their uh, results back to the county health department to, to be reported to us in the public. How long could someone expect to wait to be tested now, as opposed to last month? And and also, is there a delay in getting the results of those tests? It seems like some folks were waiting, uh, you know, an hour, maybe close to two hours in certain locations. For some reason yesterday, there, there seemed to be a large uh, wait going on at many uh, Kaiser facilities uh, uh, run by Kaiser Permanente across the county. As far as I I know, there haven't really been any major delays in them processing those samples that get collected and getting results back to people. Uh, I talked to uh, a physician over at Sharp yesterday, uh, Sharp Healthcare here in town that runs its own uh, massive testing lab. And they said, yeah, you know, we're, we're able to run as many large batches of tests as we need to. And we're usually able to get results back to people in 24 to 48 hours. So it doesn't really seem like there's been a, a massive increase in the result time yet. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say that uh, if you went in to get a, a sample collected at a, at a testing site uh, a month ago or so, you, you wouldn't have much wait at all. And now, just depending on where you go, you might see, you know, you might end up waiting an hour uh, if you're in your car, uh, you know, in one of these sites that backs up. Are public health officials worried that this could discourage people from getting tested? Uh, you know, they're not saying that they're worried, but I, I think if you uh, judge things by by what they're doing, I think they, they must be a little worried. Uh, we, we learned yesterday that uh, San Diego County just put up a large uh, new testing uh, walk-in location uh, at Cal State San Marcos up in North County uh, that's going to be capable to, uh, starting today of, of uh, processing, I think, about 1,000 people or more per day, uh, and they are working on a similar addition uh, at San Diego State down in the core of, of the city uh, that should be open this week. They, they don't have an exact day on that yet, and it sounds like they're also increasing uh, testing at some of their other smaller uh, locations uh, as well. So yeah, I think they are definitely concerned about it, just judging them by their actions. They're not really coming out and, and saying that they're worried uh, publicly. You know, many employers in the region have recently started requiring vaccines or frequent testing. So how big of a factor are these new testing requirements in this increased demand? It's really hard to say. Uh, there, there really isn't any good data on exactly why patients are coming in uh, for testing. Uh, A lot of it could be asymptomatic testing. Uh, The county just doesn't really break that down uh, and and tell us in the public uh, what percentage uh, of testing going on on any given day is for people who don't have any symptoms and are are doing this uh, as a routine requirement uh, of their employer. Though uh, there there is a fair amount of concern uh, that this uh, new mandate from the state that requires state employees as well as all healthcare employees to get tested regularly if they're not vaccinated starting this month is going to really cause demand for testing to even surge significantly beyond where it is today. Uh, so I, th- I think it's very much a concern that uh, you know. 
do we have the capacity to so regularly test so many? Uh, although, as we see uh, today as well, uh, there are increasing mandates from employers uh, to get vaccinated with uh, Kaiser Permanente uh, indicating that all of their employees are going to be required to be vaccinated. So uh, it's a little bit in flux at the moment, I guess I'd say. Do you expect to see the demand for testing in decrease actually anytime soon? Or, or do you think um, this is our new normal when it comes to testing? Mm. I mean, it's hard to say exactly how uh, things are going to go with vaccination. Uh, there, there seems to be mounting social pressure from all fronts for those who are unvaccinated uh, to get vaccinated. Uh, and I guess that may cause a, a surge in vaccination here in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, and so that would seem to be the main break on the demand for uh, testing. But, but I think until, uh, until this Delta variant uh, has fully moved through the community uh, I've, and or a lot more people start getting vaccinated, I think you're going to probably see quite a demand for testing. It's hard to put a kind of a horizon on that. It's just I, I, my crystal ball isn't uh, perfectly uh, crystal clear <laughs> at the moment on how this is going to go. Well, maybe your your crystal ball can tell us this. I mean, with this recent rise in cases, uh, what other aspects of the COVID response are you looking into? Um, you know, I think we're you know always very interested in what businesses are going to do in San Diego County. Um, you just wonder, you know, you hear stories uh, up in Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco about businesses requiring their patrons to be vaccinated if they want to come in and say, have a drink or have a meal. Uh, and so, we're, you know, I'm very interested in whether that's going to happen here as well. You know, we're always keeping an eye on what's going on in the hospitals. You know, as we've discussed before, uh, it's, it's extremely essential that, that COVID not create such a surge in hospitalization that it crowds out other patients. At the moment, it doesn't look like that's happening. There has been an increase in hospitalization, but it, uh, it looks like it's uh, at a level that our local hospitals are, are very able to handle. Uh, and so, you know, we're, I think everybody's uh, watching very closely to see if, uh, if this spike in infections that we're seeing now turns into a really significant spike in hospitalization. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson. You can find his latest story on the county's efforts to boost testing capacity on the San Diego Union-Tribune website. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A new ordinance against so-called ghost guns passed the San Diego City Council Monday. The new law would forbid the sale and possession of gun frames that don't have an identifying serial number. San Diego police say they've seen a significant increase in the number of ghost guns, which can be bought on the Internet and assembled without background checks. Advocates of the ban say the untraceable guns are often used by criminals and others who can't obtain weapons legally. Here's Stephen Abrams of Team Enough, a youth gun violence prevention group, speaking at yesterday's city council meeting. As a minor at the time, I purchased all the parts of a ghost gun kit uh, that were shipped directly to my house. And we've documented the whole process. And it, the craziest part about it, it was all completely legal. Joining me is San Diego City Council Member Marnie Von Wilpert, who introduced the measure to ban ghost guns. Marnie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me today. How big a problem do you believe ghost guns are in San Diego? 
Well, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, a ghost gun is a term for a homemade, personally manufactured firearm that lacks commercial serial numbers and can easily become untraceable. These unregulated ghost guns are made at home using unfinished frames and receivers, which are the lower parts of a gun, and can be easily assembled into fully functional firearms in minutes. So the reason I brought this ordinance forward is the mass shooting that we saw downtown San Diego in the gas lamp district on April 22nd of this year. This shooting was perpetrated by a man who was prohibited from legally buying a gun due to his violent criminal history. So he obtained an untraceable ghost gun to commit this crime. I then asked the San Diego Police Department to provide a report to the city council on ghost guns to see what was actually going on in our streets. And that's when we found out how much of a problem ghost guns have become. The police reported they have seen a 169% increase in the number of ghost guns confiscated by law enforcement. And what specifically does this new city ordinance prohibit? So this ordinance attempts to attack this problem at its source by preventing people from selling, buying, transporting the parts needed to assemble an illegal ghost gun at home. These are the unfinished frames and unfinished receivers, which are the lower parts of the weapon. Normally, those are the parts that would be serialized if these were fully assembled firearms sold by a licensed firearm manufacturer or dealer. So this ordinance seeks to only allow pre-serialized unfinished frames and unfinished receivers in the city of San Diego. That way, we will make sure that we treat these unfinished frames and receivers just like every other firearm requiring background checks, waiting periods, so that we know who's purchasing them and we prevent them from falling into the wrong hands. And what's the penalty for obtaining one of the ghost guns that does not have a serial number? So under the city ordinance, the penalty can be charged at the discretion of the police and the prosecutors as anywhere from an infraction all the way up into a misdemeanor. Uh, It could be a penalty of a $1,000 fine or up to six months in prison. Now, critics of this measure say since many people who obtain ghost guns want to use them for criminal acts, they're not going to care if possessing one is a misdemeanor. What's your response? So this is why we're trying to attack the problem at its source, you know, trying to prevent these ghost gun parts from entering the city without serial numbers in the first place. So that's the point of this ordinance is to bring these unfinished frames and unfinished receivers, which people are using to assemble ghost guns and require them to be sold with a serial number ahead of time so that it makes it harder for these parts to get into the hands of people who might want to commit crimes with them. And the reason we did this is because it's a loophole in the law. We actually worked not only with San Diego Police Department on this ordinance, we also worked with attorneys from the California Department of Justice. We worked with a gentleman named Steve Lindley, who was previously the chief of the Firearms Bureau for the California Department of Justice. He explained to us that we do need to close this loophole here in San Diego Because under California state law currently, a lawful, responsible gun owner 
can purchase a non-serialized unfinished frame or receiver and then seek to get a serial number from the California Department of Justice. We know that criminals are not taking that step. So by requiring ahead of time these serial numbers to be affixed to the unfinished frames and receivers, not only does that mean that lawful purchasers will already have complied with California state law, but we're going to prevent a lot of these parts that are untraceable from the get-go from even entering San Diego in the first place. It seems like it would take a national effort to get at the root of the issue and get the guns off the internet. Do you agree? Yes, Maureen, I do agree that we need every level of government to act to prevent gun violence that we're seeing rising nationally, not just here in San Diego. Luckily, the state and the federal government are also taking action. And one of the things President Biden is doing is to do a rulemaking change to classify unfinished frames and receivers as firearms. That will allow our national background checks, ATF, All the other regulations we have in place to kick in on a federal level, the state of California will have new regulations go into effect requiring only face-to-face transactions for purchasing unfinished frames or receivers in July of 2022. But since we've seen the rising gun violence here in San Diego, including crimes perpetrated with people who have ghost guns, I knew that we couldn't wait and we had to act at the city level to start saving lives today while we have the national and the state levels working in conjunction with us. And when do you expect the new San Diego City Ordinance on Ghost Guns to go into effect? So under our, our city charter, we have to have two readings of every law, unless it's an emergency ordinance. And since we're going on legislative recess after today's council, the next available hearing is September 14th when we come back. So we will be hearing it again September 14th after it's passed on September and 14th. The law will go into effect within 30 days. So we do have time to ramp up, to do outreach, work with gun manufacturers, work with community groups and our police department to let people know that this new ordinance is coming, educate folks, and really work to make sure that this is done right and people aren't caught off guard, but that we can act quicker than the state or federal government to really stem the tide of all of these ghost gun parts flooding San Diego and the resulting proliferation of ghost guns in our communities. I've been speaking with San Diego City Council Member Marnie Von Wilpert, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcasts and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. 
This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. U.S. involvement in the Afghanistan war is coming to an end after 20 years. The Dark Horse Battalion suffered the highest percentage of casualties of any Marine unit. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says the Camp Pendleton Marine Unit is still trying to reconcile their legacy a decade after they returned home. By the time the Dark Horse Battalion left Helmont Province in 2011, they had 184 wounded Marines, 34 of them amputees, and 25 dead. Among them, the son of four-star Marine General John Kelly. In 2013, before he retired, Kelly spoke at a ceremony at Camp Pendleton. He urged the Marines to honor those who had served their country. And in many cases, fought and died for it. And never forget your buddies that never made it home. A decade after the survivors came home, it's still difficult to place the legacy of the unit that suffered the highest number of casualties in the war. Logan Stark collected hours of footage shot by his fellow Marines as Dark Horse pushed back against the Taliban during heavy fighting. And this was kind of in that little sweet zone before the Marine Corps started like highly regulating people filming stuff. He came back that April, and by August, he had left the Corps and enrolled as a student at Michigan State. During that whirlwind, he started making a documentary, interviewing members of Dark Horse. Initially, he thought he was the only one having panic attacks. And and that's what I think a lot of people just didn't, and me specifically, I didn't understand. It's like, it's okay to be going through all this. Like, there's, there's reasons behind all of it. And it just didn't seem like we were, like, really good at communicating that to our peers. His documentary called For the 25 is still on his YouTube channel. Even the veterans of the most celebrated units of the war have had a tough time describing the war in Afghanistan. Marcus Cicilli lost his left leg to an IED two weeks after he arrived. Every day for that first year when I was back back in the United States was like reliving that moment. It was a, it was a really big struggle to try to figure out you know, what my life was going to be like after that. After two years in the hospital, he is now married with small children and walking on a prosthetic. We were there to protect each other. We were there to bring each other home. We were there to fight, yes, for our country and to accomplish our mission. But every single day was about, I got you. Like, you're my brother. I'm going to make sure you get home today. Gretchen Catherwood's son, Alec, was killed in October 2010. It's, it's, it's not an every moment of every day kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's constantly in my brain and it's always there. There are some days that are horrible and there are some days that are okay. She was in the audience when General Kelly spoke at the memorial in 2013. After the remembrance ceremony and seeing the looks in those guys' faces in their eyes, I said, there's got to be something we can do. She and her husband moved from Illinois to Tennessee, where they're building a quiet lake retreat for combat veterans to honor the Dark Horse Battalion. You don't want to tell your wife or your mother or your sister or some of your friends from high school what you experienced, what you had to do, um, but they can talk to each other. And really nobody can help a combat veteran like a combat veteran. Each bedroom is named after one of the 25 who died, with plaques for six Dark Horse Marines who have since died by suicide. And I believe that they are a casualty of war every single bit as much as those who were killed in action are. It's their monument to an ongoing sacrifice in a war that cannot easily be explained. Joining me is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. 
What made the deployment of the Dark Horse Battalion so dangerous and deadly? What was happening in Helmand Province at the time? So the British had been there prior to the U.S. Marines, so, and they had set up outposts all around the area, but they really didn't have the numbers to hold all of those positions, so they took a large number of casualties even before the Marines got there. Then the Marines come in, they decide they're going to be much more aggressive, they uh, consolidate their positions, and they start running regular patrols to seek out contact with the enemy. But the, the Taliban were, were well dug in, they understood the terrain, and this was kind of a crossroad, so the Taliban uh, could go in and out of other parts of the region, so this was very important for them to hold this area. So the fighting was already well underway by the time the Marines got there, and the Taliban were well positioned, and they had alliances in the area, so it was, it was incredibly deadly. Were the Marines of the 3-5, were they prepared for what they would encounter, or was the Taliban resistance stronger than they expected? They definitely knew that this was an area of strong resistance, and they were warned by the British. Um, they wanted to retake this area from the Taliban and hold it, which they eventually did. And when the Marines finally left the area, they, it did eventually fall back into the hands of the Taliban, which kind of complicates their legacy. But over the time that the tactics had changed, you know, we, we talked to Marcus in the feature. He was wounded by an IED that was actually made out of wood, so it would not be picked up by American mine detectors. These IEDs were originally used in Iraq, but they eventually had moved over to Afghanistan as the two insurgencies began swapping personnel and tactics to help fight the uh, American troops. In a previous report, you said that the war in Afghanistan never really registered among the American public the way the war in Iraq did. Is that one of the reasons securing the legacy of the Dark Horse Battalion is so difficult? Yeah, I, th I think so. So from a pure fighting standpoint, it was a costly but a tactical success at the time. They did beat back the Taliban. So from the perspective of some people, the Dark Horse ranks right up there with uh, the Battles of the Pacific or, or Bella Wood in, in World War I or the Second Battle of Fallujah in Iraq, some of the most storied battles in Marine Corps history. On the flip side, it's, it's kind of harder to put this into the con you know, context of the larger conflict. The Marines held their position, but they couldn't defeat the Taliban. It was quite costly with 184 casualties and, and 25 dead. You know, it's the eternal lesson from Vietnam. You can push the Germans out of Poland, but you really can't push the Vietnamese out of Vietnam. And that's really what was happening here in Afghanistan. Tell us more, if you will, about the former Dark Horse Battalion Marines who died by a suicide. You say that there have been six that have died that way. Right. Uh, Gretchen Catherwood, who runs the Dark Horse Lodger, they're building this in Tennessee, is kind of a refuge for combat veterans. She lost her 19-year-old son, Eric, and she's kind of kept a tally. She and her husband stay in pretty close contact with a number of the unit, and they kind of sort, sort of hear from word of mouth, like when somebody has died. You know, we have seen an elevated risk of suicide among active duty military since the war on terror began. It used to be the other way around. Military service actually used to make you less susceptible to suicide. Um, now it's a risk factor. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily tied to combat exposure or deployment. I can tell you that uh, gun ownership really plays a role in veteran suicide. You can tell from other members of the Dark Horse that they suffered from, we'll call it stress when they came back home, maybe undiagnosed PTSD, nightmares, and anxiety. These risk factors uh, can lead to suicide if, if left unchecked. You mentioned that couple who are building a retreat for combat veterans, and it leads me to wonder, 
What kind of resources are there for Marines from this unit or others who are still suffering the effects of fighting in Afghanistan? Oh, there are a lot, actually, though uh, Marines do not always make the easiest patients. In fact, several members of the Dark Horse, it just it sounds like they may have gone to the VA here or there, but they really seem to have benefited more from talking to one another. Uh, you know, the VA in San Diego created the first program for PTSD geared specifically to post-9-11 veterans who didn't uh, like the group therapy that was the hallmark of treating uh, the earlier Vietnam vets. And some of the treatments really have, especially over the last 20 years, they've, they've evolved pretty dramatically. You know, we've heard some disturbing stories coming out of Afghanistan lately. There are reports of Taliban advances, Taliban atrocities. The U.S. airstrikes are trying to keep the situation in check. You reported last month on the struggle to get Afghan interpreters who worked for the U.S. out of harm's way and out of the country. I'm wondering, how does this aftermath, this complicated aftermath, increase the confusing legacy of this 20-year war? So we know now that there are some plans to bring interpreters to the East Coast to finish their paperwork. You know, we have 18,000 interpreters who have applied, but we know that many more people work with the Americans and either never applied or gave up somewhere in the process. We've heard the number of like 30,000 people are trying to flee. That number could perhaps go way up as, you know, the Americans finally, the last of them leave. You know, you hear echoes of the fall of Saigon at, you know, at the end of the American war in Vietnam. We may see a, a similar humanitarian crisis unfolding, and which may be a, a tremendous moral embarrassment to the United States after 20 years of war. This is what we're going to be learning now over the next several months, just what that legacy is going to look like. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. Simone Biles returned to compete in the balance beam final, winning bronze as gymnastics event finals wrapped up this morning in Tokyo. In many ways, her 2021 Olympic journey has been symbolic of the mental health balance one must have to compete. Last week, the champion withdrew from competition to focus on her mental health before returning, a move many athletes, including USA surfing gold medalist Carissa Moore, found inspiring. I think she's handled it beautifully. Um, I applaud her for putting herself first and doing what's right for her. That's hard to do in a world where people expect so much of you and have this idea of what success looks like. Jira Orteski is a sports psychologist and certified mental performance consultant who works with collegiate and Olympic athletes. She joins us now to talk about how Simone Biles' decision opened dialogue surrounding mental health, athletes, and all of us. Shira, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Simone Biles won her seventh career Olympic medal today after previously withdrawing from competition for mental health reasons and something called twisties. First, how significant is her road back to competition and winning the bronze medal? I think this was such a monumental event today. You know, I think of Simone Biles as one of the greatest athletes of all times, and now she's tied for winning the most Olympic medals of any American gymnast. And I think her ability to be able to step away when she needed to, to focus on her health and her safety was so important and really presents, you know, 
provides a stage where it gives permission to other athletes to be able to do so as well. And then the fact that she was able to come back from it and win another medal was just so powerful. Can you explain what the twisties is and the danger that issue can pose if ignored? Yes, definitely. The twisties um, are a type of mental block in which a gymnast is in midair and they lose their sense of orientation. Um, So they become disoriented when they're upside down. And it can be caused by anxiety or pressure. We see it in in different sports in different ways. So if um, a gymnast is experiencing this and they miscalculate their landing, it can be quite dangerous because they may land on their feet wrong. They could land on their back or their neck. And so it's really important, um, as I had mentioned, that they're in kind of that clear mental state to be able to perform these high-level skills. And, And can you explain what's the difference between mental health and mental performance and how important is it that both of those things be in sync for competition? When we think of our health and well-being, you know, our mental health exists kind of on a continuum. So you have resiliency and thriving on one end and then impairment on the other. And, you know, what the world of sports is seeing more and more is how important our mental wellness wellness is and how it's an integral part of, you know, elite optimal health as well as performance. I love Brian Hainline from the, he's the chief medical officer from the NCAA. And he says, you know, in this day and age, we can no longer separate wellness and excellence. And so I think, you know, in basic terms, when we're feeling well, we perform at our best. And so I think that's the way that we can see those two components be integrated. You know, Simone Biles wasn't the only athlete struggling with mental health issues. Shakari Richardson and Naomi Osaka both took measures to address their issues. Why do you think this year has been particularly challenging for athletes? I think this um, has been such an unprecedented year with um, so much uncertainty and predictability with COVID. First of all, you know, athletes they train in kind of a four-year cycle and they're set to peak physically at a certain point. And so they were preparing, you know, for that to be last summer, 2020. And so with all the changes that have been taking place with the Olympics initially canceled and then the uncertainty and, you know, I think that's been extremely challenging as well as just, you know, some of the challenges and concerns that all of us have been experiencing this year, concern for our own health, um, our families, combined with, you know, some of the social justice issues that athletes have been experiencing and the pressures of competing in front of the world, given all the restrictions with COVID. It's, I think it's been quite a challenging year. Because I was going to ask if you think that issues of sexism and racism are an added layer to that. I I do. I think, you know, there's a lot of components that have been occurring for a long time. And, you know, some of them have been more invisible. And I think this year has has really brought a lot of the things to the surface. You know, Novak Djokovic was another athlete who had mental health issues. Uh, Days after criticizing Simone Biles' decision to focus on her well-being, he had a violent meltdown and withdrew from competition. What do you think about how he responded and managed his mental health in that situation? 
I think this really goes to show how important it is to address issues early on. If we don't, if we push things away or we ignore them, often they reach, um, they kind of build up and um, can reach more of a crisis level and then come out in an unhealthy manner. You know, what lessons can other athletes pull from Simone Biles's and even Naomi Osaka's decision to prioritize their mental health? I think this is a great point. I I mean, these athletes um, are kind of on a very public stage. And, you know, when they come out and speak openly, um, as well as, you know, Michael Phelps, it gives younger athletes um, permission to do the same. And so it opens up the dialogue around this area and it helps athletes know that it's okay to say no and have a limit when they need to, to um, make health and well-being and a priority. Um, and so I think they've been, you know, very courageous in terms of coming out and speaking openly about this. Do you think those lessons can be useful for all of us? I mean, even people in their own careers and day-to-day lives. I think so. I think as, you know, as as we bring this topic more to the forefront, it's always been there, but it's um, been more invisible. And as we just kind of are able to speak openly and express our vulnerabilities, um, I mean, I think part of what these athletes are showing is that you can kind of be the greatest at your craft and you can also, you know, be human and, and be vulnerable. And I think it takes a lot of courage to show those sides. Um, but as, as we do, it helps us to be able to talk about it. It helps us to be able to manage some of these stressors, some of these pressures that we experience in our life in, um, in a healthier way. I've been speaking with Shira Oretsky, sports psychologist and certified mental performance consultant. Shira, thank you so much for your insight today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. It's been about a month since the U.S. Defense Department released a report on unidentified aerial phenomena commonly referred to as UFOs. That report was dropped on a Friday evening in June with little fanfare, and quite a few Americans may have missed the extraordinary nature of the document. After decades of dismissing UFO sightings out of hand, the government admitted that of the 144 UFOs studied, 143 remain unidentified. The report suggests the sightings may be the result of sensor errors or even advanced technology developed by other nations, but there is no mention of a possible extraterrestrial explanation.
Former Democratic Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid was instrumental in the creation of a government program to officially collect UFO information back in 2007. He's written about his curiosity about UFOs, the unfortunate stigma attached to the issue, and his hope for scientific answers. Senator Harry Reid, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. The government's report didn't quite stir up the excitement one might have expected. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, they did it on a night that news goes nowhere. Friday night is a, you want to kill a story, file a paper on Friday evening, what they did. They obviously, in reading the report, it was so cursory, so thin, so marginalized. I am very disappointed. I would hope that people in Congress understand that that is not the way to satisfy the American people. The one thing we need to do is be transparent. And this shows no transparency. We need to get to the bottom of this, continue working on it. It seems to me the more we study it, the more we don't know. And I think that's important that people understand that. This is not some conspiratorial theory. This is real facts. We need to get to the bottom of it. Even considering the uh, small amount of information that was released, what did you find as the most intriguing data in the government's UFO report? I found very little of this new cut new ground. But I have said, and I believe this, this can't be a one and we're through with it. This has to be an ongoing program where the federal government is involved in studying these unidentified flying objects. They can no longer say they don't exist because they exist. And we need to find out what they are. And the more we try to hide it, the more apparent it becomes that we're trying to hide something from the American people. That's the wrong way to go. The only sighting studied in this report occurred between the years 2004 and 2021, and those that were reported largely by military personnel. Yet you believe the government has decades of information on UFOs. Why wasn't that part of this report? I do not know. I also believe that we, we do know that the Pentagon, the United States military, is now being really, I think, up front. It used to be they criticized their pilots and sea captains for even talking about this. But now they're asking their pilots and their men at sea to report these findings. Is UFO identified? They should report it. I believe that's the case. I'm glad the Pentagon has stepped forward and are doing this. You know, speaking of sightings by military personnel, the so-called Tic Tac UFO sighting by pilots from the USS Nimitz off the coast of San Diego is one of the videos that's been released to the public, and that's a sighting involving multiple sensors and multiple observers of objects flying in ways that would not be possible in any technology we know of. Now, as you say, it doesn't seem that it's enough for us just to say we don't know what they were. So what should be the next step in this process? Well, I think the next step should be the step that should have been taken initially. Study now, study in the future, got to continue this study and find out what's going on here. We've been talking about these UFOs for 70 years, and we have not gotten any place other than to understand that the more we learn, the more we need to learn. And so I am satisfied that the Pentagon is doing the right thing. You, you give the example of the USS Omaha. I think that's important. The 
situation we had. I'm sorry, I don't know. Did you mention the Omaha? No, I didn't. I just uh, mentioned the Nimitz. Well, with the Omaha, this was a very interesting thing. And anymore, it's not just mere people saying they saw it. They had this object shaped like a football that was probably almost as long as a football field. And it floats around and t- around the ship for a while and then just goes into the ocean and it disappears. This is really, to me, it's intriguing. Something we shouldn't just forget about it, move on to something else. This is something we need to study and study hard. Do you think it was wrong for the Defense Department to release this document without including even the possibility of an extraterrestrial explanation for the UFOs? Well, I, I don't know why they decided to let us know a little bit more, but I'm glad they did it. And I think that uh, they, they've made a decision that's, that they don't know what it is. And I'm satisfied that the scientific community can convince me that it comes from someplace else. I'll accept that. But we can't just ignore it. According to polling, a third of Americans, and this includes both Democrats and Republicans, believe that UFOs are evidence of alien visitors. As more documentation comes out verifying the existence of UFOs, do you expect that number to go up? It definitely will go up without any question. And I think that's the way it should be. This isn't something that's going to we're not suddenly going to have no UFOs to talk about or look at, uh, but it, we need to stay on top of it, have an ongoing government program. That's why I was very disappointed they released a press account of it on Friday evening, a way to kill it, and they need to pick up where they left off and continue the program. Members of Congress need to go forward. I was happy to see Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. Uh, talk about the need to continue work on this. And I hope Marco proceeds further on this. Now, I know you don't uh, truck with conspiracy theories, but let me just mention that a common conspiracy theory about the government and UFOs is that officials are engaged in the slow release of information to kind of warm up the public for the eventual reveal that we have been visited by extraterrestrials. In your time as Senate Majority Leader, did you get the sense that the government had a lot more intelligence about UFOs than they were telling you? I think the government has not been forthcoming as they should. Now, I don't know what information they have, but I, I think all we've gotten from them so far is little tidbits, little bits of information. I think they have a lot more that they can give us if they wanted to, and I hope they decide quickly that they want to give us more. Your friend Robert Bigelow of Bigelow Aerospace is a big proponent of the fact that we've been visited by extraterrestrials. And I'm wondering if you and he have discussed that in any way and if any of his arguments have been compelling to you. I have known Bob Bigelow for three or four decades. He's a man who puts his money where his mouth is. He spent millions of dollars studying uh, UFOs and doing other things. So I think that people of goodwill like Bob Bigelow should applaud work being done by others. I know that I, I really admire Bob Bigelow for doing what he's done. And he's, as we speak, he's going forward with more. He's get put up a different cash awards for studies here at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Learn more about the work he's been doing. You know, it's not only Americans who've seen unidentified aerial phenomena. It's happened 
all over the world. Do you think the investigation into UFOs should be international? I would hope that we're sharing information with France, China, Russia. They, they have ongoing programs to study UFOs. And I think it's an area where we don't have all the answers, but we have some of the answers. And the more we share, better it will be for all the countries. This is something that is beyond nationalism. It should be something that we recognize. The world needs to know more. Now, Senator, you've said that you're prepared to go where science leads you on this topic. But do you think of it, science leads us to the conclusion that we have been visited by uh, people from other worlds? Uh, is the American public ready for that? I don't know if the American public's ready for it, but I am. If you can prove scientifically that these UFOs are coming from someplace else, I'll accept that. This great world we live in, we're just a little blip. And there's nothing to suggest that we are the only intelligences anywhere in the, this uh, world we talk about, this universe. I really appreciate you spending some time with us. I've been speaking with former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Senator Reid, thank you so much for your insights. Call anytime. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.